Welcome to Writers Festival Radio, broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered lands of the Algonquin Anishinaabe Nation. My name is Neil Wilson. I'm a co-founder of the Ottawa International Writers Festival and the Republic of Childhood, our programming for children and youth. And I'm hosting a series of six podcasts which explore education in the face of environmental crisis, which is the tagline of the book Teaching in the Anthropocene, a pan-Canadian collection of 43 short essays by leading educators and researchers edited by Alicia Farrell, Candy Jones, Michelle Lamb, with illustrations and copy editing by Grace Stone. It is published by Canadian scholars and was released on July 29th, 2022. As the editors write in the introduction, we feel compelled to ask if the climate crisis expands the ethical obligations of teachers to include ensuring livable lives for children yet to come. If not, what can it possibly mean to teach in a world that is prepared to go on without us? It is becoming increasingly apparent that technocratic frameworks and conventional teaching methods are insufficient in the face of climate change dilemmas that are complex, integrative, multi-perspectival, and effectively charged. Time is of the essence, and young people feel it. Fueled by concerns for their future and angered by the inaction of adults, students across the globe continue to walk out of school on Fridays to participate in climate strikes. Yet, in the field of education, we have yet to respond in any significant way to the danger the climate crisis poses to the young people we teach. In the fourth of our series of six podcasts, I spoke with Candy Jones, an associate professor in the Faculty of Education and chair of the Department of Curriculum and Pedagogy at Brandon University. Her research interests include rural education and capacity building centering on place-based pedagogies. Candy points out that the knowledge cultivated within rural communities may offer uniquely rural solutions to the climate emergency faced by all of us. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Michelle Lamb, one of the editors of Teaching in the Anthropocene. Michelle is the director of the Centre for Aboriginal and Rural Education Studies and Applied Research Institute in the Faculty of Education at Brandon University. Prior to entering academia, she was in English as an additional language teacher in Canada and abroad. She is interested in newcomer settlement, education for anti-racism and rural equity. Thanks for joining us today, Michelle, on Writers Festival Radio. Well, thanks for having me, Neil. It's great to be here. So as one of the editors, I'd, I'd like to ask you, what, what were you hoping to achieve when you helped put this project together? I think you captured some of it in the introduction that you just read, this idea that the field of education has yet to grapple with the climate crisis and what that means for us as educators to, I think you, you quoted it to nail, to, you nailed it, this quote about uh, teaching in a world that's prepared to go on without us. How can we, how can we in, in good conscience educate children knowing that the future that they that we are educating them for might not happen. And so we need to grapple with this as a field. And I think our hope is that this book 
sparks that conversation. And so I'm really grateful for the chance to be on this podcast, because I think this is the kinds of conversations that we were hoping as editors would come out of this book. So, so thanks for having me here. It's wonderful. Oh, excellent. Michelle, your piece is called Looking the Gift Horse in the Mouth, Climate Refugees and the Role of Education in Promoting Inclusivity. And, and you open with the story of a community group you belonged to uh, who sponsored a refugee from South Sudan. And she's called Nadia, which is a uh, pseudonym, of course. Um, so can we start here and with some of the barriers facing refugees coming to Canada? Sure. Yeah. So I think a lot of times when we think about refugees and, you know, think, we think about trauma, that we often think of trauma as something that happened before they came to Canada, you know, back in the refugee camp or in the journey to the refugee camp. But there's a growing body of literature around this idea that trauma isn't just something that happens before arrival, that post 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 arrival, you know, after they've arrived in Canada, all these other things happen that are also re-traumatizing. And these are the kinds of barriers facing refugees coming. And it's not just it's not just exclusive to refugees in some cases, you know, things like the unexpected difficulties of credential certification. This happens to newcomers regardless of what stream they've arrived in. Um, finding appropriate housing, the lack of cultural community, overt racism or exclusion. You know, there are there are a lot of of barriers that people face and, and they're not always experienced one after the other or in some kind of uh, linear way, a lot of times they're compounding one another as well. And so it becomes really complex. You say, uh, Michelle, that in many cases, these refugees are treated the same as prison inmates. Mm. Yeah, so this is starting to change now. So since the time we wrote this chap, since I wrote my chapter, and well, really since the pandemic began, there are now four provinces which have ended their detention contracts. So my province of Manitoba is one of them. Woohoo, Manitoba. Um, but there's there's a push now for, for Canadian Border Services Agency to end the rest of those contracts. And there's a campaign that's being led by Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch to end this practice of using provincial jails for immigration detention. Actually, there was a great piece just last week, I think, in the Globe and Mail, by Lloyd Axworthy about about this topic. So it's a timely question, but um, it is starting to change. So we're seeing it move in the right direction, but there's still, there's still, you know, only four provinces so far. So it, it does need to, we're moving in the right direction, but we still have a ways to go. Does, does the UN Refugee Agency now, I mean, have they changed to, to recognize the term climate refugee? Not quite. So Again, there are signs moving in the right direction. So I think in, in 2021, uh, President Joe Biden had asked for uh, some solutions or some ideas around how to move that forward. So there are signs that it's moving in the right direction, but it doesn't as of yet. The The convention doesn't explicitly mention climate change. So, so just to give some background on that, they offer protection for persecution that's based on race, religion, political leaning, nationality, membership in a particular group. So these are protected categories. So when a person is seeking protection, the kinds of questions that they're being asked is looking at, is this person going to face persecution or torture if they're returned back to their country? That's kind of what they're trying to, to get at. And so up until recently, climate change hasn't been 
thought of as one of those things that is going to cause someone to be facing persecution or facing torture. It isn't included and explicitly mentioned. But as I said, there are signs that it's starting to change. So countries are, are recognizing now that climate change impacts these other factors and that deporting someone back to a place that has been severely impacted by climate change can really be a risk to their life. So I think it, again, there are signs that it's moving in the right direction, but it, it isn't as of yet a protected category. Mm. Thank you for, for clarifying that. Um, you also write the, the current narratives uh, of welcome, and we see this often in sound bites and in certain uh, glossy documentaries there there here here we have a, a plane load of uh, of of climate refugees uh they're welcomed um they're desperate um they're grateful and they're being met by compassionate often white canadians who rescue them and you you say that not only do these stereotypes erase the history and ongoing presence of indigenous peoples in canada but they also flatten experiences and lead to expectations that can become sources of hostility when they are unmet. Um, can you, you talk about that and, and what are some of the challenges then facing teachers and policymakers in dealing with these uh, stereotypes? Hmm. That's, that's a great question. There's a, there's a lot of different things I could say. I'll start with the erasure of Indigenous peoples in that kind of narrative. So I was in a settlement and indigenous group that met maybe a couple months ago. So it was pretty recent. And there was an indigenous spiritual leader around the table who said, who is doing this welcoming? You know, he said that newcomers go and they do their Canadian citizenship ceremony and they wave the flag and sing the anthem. And he said, how come indigenous people aren't involved in this process? We have feasts and we have, I'm saying we, I'm not indigenous, but the, I'm quoting him. We have feasts and we have uh, ceremonies to welcome people to the land, but they're not being done in this, at least in not in our in our treaty area. And so, this this does invisibilize or or remove Indigenous peoples from that process. That kind of you know grateful plane load of refugees coming to the airport, being met with Canadian flags. You know there there is no representation there. So that was more to the first part of your question. And then the piece around expectations, I'll tell you about someone that, um, this is a, another story. I'm answering your questions with stories. I hope that's okay. That's but, great. <laughs> so there was a, a refugee sponsor and as many refugee sponsors are, you know, very well-intentioned, very kind-hearted, wanting to do the right thing. Um, but also just hadn't really examined those ideas about who is the helper and who is the helpy and some of the assumptions that underlie that. And so she had a really hard time when the child of that family, the refugee child, started going to school and her not being involved in the process. So she had wanted updates from the child's teacher. She had wanted to be involved in parent teacher interviews and had a really hard time recognizing that that wasn't her role. And I think that those kinds of stereotypes where I am the helpy as the sponsor and, or I'm the helper and you are the helpy and I always help you. And it's that kind of one directional top down sort of helping rather than a more equitable process where we recognize that we both have things to learn from each other. And there are, are ways we can benefit one another. 
And I mm-hmm. think that there's this really great idea that's, I think I quoted it in my chapter and it's, it's not mine. It's from someone named Creates, but it's this idea of self-rescue that refugees are people who are active in the process of finding their way. They're not just passive recipients of our, of our benevolent actions. And I think that reframing that is really important. You continue uh, in, in your chapter um, as educators, you say our task is to nurture and grow students into more than they are, not less than they are. And you ask, can students learn from the diversity around them that they do not belong to their particular family, community, or nation, but they are already present in a web of relations, some of which are global in scope? That's a huge concept. I think a lot of so-called educated adults would would have a challenge with that. Um, mm-hmm. So you're suggesting that that some students are are ready to deal with that, that that they may even be dealing with it already without being taught it. If you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think if I were to go back and reword my chapter, I would have maybe changed that so that it doesn't say they don't belong to their particular family and nation and community because they do right but it's sure. belonging and and i wish i had phrased it a little differently but uh, i think this question is really around expanding horizons and i'll i'll give you an example from close to home so my dad and i have very different ideas about how to care for the people in our lives we get along quite well but we just have really different ideas about just about everything in the world i think <laughs> but uh for him in his you know he lives in rural manitoba where i grew up And so for him, he sees climate policies filtering down from Ottawa and sees the impact on the farmers around him and views that as a detrimental thing. And so for him, the the motivating factor is care for the people in his life, right? And um, I think for for all of us, we want people in our lives, in our networks to thrive and, and we love them and we want to see them do well. But I think our circles of or our networks networks are too small. And I think we need to feel that same kind of care much more broadly. So people going through the flooding in Pakistan, you know, do I feel the same kind of care there, the same kind of relational responsibility there as I do to the neighbor down my street? And that's really a really hard thing to do because there isn't that personal network yet. But I think that's where education has a really unique uh, possibility. So imagine if you know, as Canada hits these ambitious immigration targets that were just announced, we they announced 500,000 newcomers per year. So classrooms are going to increasingly become a place where there, there are diverse networks of learners already established that are representing countries around the globe. And I think if teachers are on it, they have a really unique p- position in, in that classroom to be able to intentionally build that kind of network of global care. So when we hear the news coming out of Pakistan, it's connected to someone maybe at the next table in our classroom, and we begin to feel that empathy through those relational networks. I think that's a really exciting thought. Michelle, you you ask, are students strong enough to hold the weight of the knowledge that many of the countries least responsible for the climate crisis are the ones who bear most of the impact. And you, you, you ask, have we been sheltering students from the knowledge 
that the climate crisis is largely a result of our own collective actions. Could you expand on that a little, please? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is going back to that idea of this global network of care. Mm -hmm. And I think this is really hard. It, it it's it's hard emotional work to deal with the the conversations that come out when we start focusing on our complicity. So it's you know all the shame and the guilt and the anger that students and teachers and anyone can feel when they start realizing that this country that they thought of as you know, this beautiful place, or maybe it was the dream of a refugee to come to Canada and it was going to be this beautiful place. And then they realized that the reason their family had to flee was maybe in part because Canada didn't meet its climate goals over and over and over, you know, or I, I had someone recently tell me after the bodies of children were found in, in the residential school in Kamloops. So this was last year or maybe a year and a half now. They had said, and they had been in Canada for 40 years. They were Vietnamese refugees. And they said, we didn't think Canada was like this. And that, that eye-opening moment when you realize that this global network is connected is so painful for some, for some people. And so I'll, I had a, I had a classroom once with 18 students from 17 countries. And so I'm just going to provide an example maybe for, of, of what this looks like in an EAL or English as an additional language classroom. So in this classroom, it was an adult classroom. So all newcomers here in Canada learning English. And I had, this was about uh, 15 years ago when Tibet and China were very tense. And I had a Chinese student and a Tibetan student that had up until uh, the news started coming out about Tibet and China. They had sat at the same table. And then the next week I came to class and they were sitting at opposite sides of the classroom. And so this is what it looks like in an EAL class. And, you know, it's it's difficult as a teacher. What do you do in those scenarios? Do you have a, a class about, you know, global politics or, or how do you do that in a language classroom? But I, I, I think you could see the same thing today in a class with Ukrainian and Russian students or, you know, there are many examples but that's what the dynamics are like in the classroom. And it's the same with climate change and talking about the climate change in a classroom. So maybe, you know, maybe you're talking about reducing meat consumption and you have a student in your class whose parents make their living on a cattle farm, or you're talking about oil and someone's uncle or aunt works in oil and gas. And like, these aren't theoretical conversations for students and they can be incredibly emotionally difficult to navigate. But I think that, you know, even though it's easier to avoid conversations that are difficult or topics that cause us pain, particularly if there's family or there's relationships or, you know, treasured memories that are at the heart of it. I think that it's work that needs to, needs to move forward. And I'm seeing now, I've been thinking about this recently, these parallels between what's happening in this process of truth and reconciliation that Canada is working through where we had to hear the truth and had to hear the painful stories and had to acknowledge that Canada perpetrated a genocide. We had to hear these things and mm -hmm. now are taking concrete steps towards that reconciliation and healing. And I think the the process for climate change is very similar where I don't, I don't know, and I'm speaking as a rural Manitoban, so this might be contextual, but I don't know that we've recognized the truths yet. I don't know that we've heard all the stories 
And I think that it's a lot easier emotionally to sort of pat ourselves on the back and say, oh, you know, I did a good thing. I sent a shoebox of gifts over to another country or I, I sponsored a refugee and we can feel good about ourselves rather than acknowledging that maybe that refugee became a refugee because we didn't meet our targets or because we didn't advocate or, you know, that there's some some form of responsibility for us either as consumers or or on a more broader scale looking at as Canadians. And so it's difficult work, it's emotional, but um, yeah, I think that's where we need to go. I read a critique of the word Anthropocene recently, which is, you know, the title of our book, but um, you know, they said uh, that it, you know, this, it isn't all humans that before, before colonizers arrived on Turtle Island, that this was uh, land that was cared for in, in sustainable ways. And so, you know, the word Anthropocene makes it sound like we're blaming all humans, but really it's not separate from the issue of colonization. And so that, that made me think a lot that, you know, this, I, I, your question was, are, are we ready to have these conversations? And mm. I think it, I think we might, we must be, you know, just, I think it's 2050. Yeah. By 2050, the World Bank is projecting that climate change can internally displace more than 140 million people. So that's one out of every 50 people on Earth being displaced because of the climate crisis. And so 2050 isn't isn't that far away. And so it I don't know. It's kind of like ready or not. Here it comes, right? Like you, it doesn't. It, we need to have these conversations and. They are complex and they are difficult, but I think I think we can if we can learn to to establish this kind of network of care where teachers aren't on their own doing their own thing in their own classroom. They have a, a network of other like-minded teachers who are doing the work alongside them. I think it'll be easier if we can do it together. That's my thinking. You know, we're coming out of the pandemic, and I've just got all these stories in my mind that I've heard of just incredible people, like teachers driving out to communities that didn't have internet access so they could drop off packages for students so they could keep learning or teaching from the back of their truck through windows and things, you know? So I feel like, you know, teachers are, are pretty amazing people. And I think that they have good hearts and good intentions. It's, it's how can we equip them to be able to have these conversations and to be able to do the work that's required if they themselves haven't, haven't done that yet. So like it's hard for anyone to guide someone down a path that they haven't walked, right? So as teacher educators in a faculty of education, how can we be working with teacher candidates or future teachers to be able to have these conversations in classrooms? And as a as a maybe separate but not entirely separate example, teachers in Manitoba, maybe in Canada, are are mostly white women, statistically speaking. Mm. And so if they haven't ever thought of themselves as white, which that might surprise you, but, but people often don't. They think of whiteness as a kind of neutral background against which everyone else is somehow different, but it's of course not like that. But if they haven't grappled with what that means, with what whiteness means in terms of positionality or power or privilege or understanding intersections of gender and race, it, then it's going to be really hard for them when they go into their classroom to enact any kind of anti-racist pedagogies. And so it's the same for these kinds of interconnected systems that we're talking about in relation to the climate crisis. So if they haven't done the work themselves, it's going to be really hard for them to have the conversations in their classrooms. 
And so that's why when we think about working with teacher candidates, helping them understand their own stories or how they came to be who they are, the think the way they do. You know, sometimes teachers come in and they say, well, why do we have to do all this kind of introspective work? You know, that's why, because we need to do the work ourselves in order to lead others. This complicity is deep, but without doing this work, as you say, we're, we're still part of the problem as educators or as parents or as people who work with kids. So what's next for you in terms of <laughs> projects and, uh, you know, looking at some of these very, very important issues uh, of, of refugees and uh, education and complicity and complexity? What, where are you going next? Oh, that's a big, that's a big question, Neil. Uh, so I run the research center here. And so I've got, you know, plates spinning in different directions all over the place. But um, uh, one, of the, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about lately is this um, interconnection between Indigenous communities and settlement in our, in our area. And I, I was recently speaking to a group of settlement workers uh, from um, it was from multiple small centers, so not large urban centers. And um, I asked them you know, to show their hands how many had received education around treaty responsibilities, the history and legacy of residential schooling, you know, stuff like that. And very few people raised their hands. And I thought, I can remember, I can remember being an EAL teacher, you know, in my first couple years of teaching, and. Within one or two months of arrival, newcomers, sometimes they had been explicitly told negative and harmful stereotypes about Indigenous peoples, and other times they drew their own conclusions based on what they had seen around them. But they would come to class and they would ask me as their teacher about Indigenous peoples, and I had no resources to give, that, to give them at a level that was appropriate for their language. They were still kind of learning how to say, you know, hello, my name is, I'm from so-and-so. And so there, there weren't any sort of translated resources, and I had, I had my own knowledge that was lacking at that time. And so I think we need to do a better job there of not just working with teachers that are in K-12 classrooms, but looking at the teaching profession more broadly, at people who are working in communities and community teaching roles, and to think about how can we make connections between Indigenous peoples in, in our area? Uh, can we maybe translate some, some of those resources into other languages? Can we do training? Can we make connections? Uh, and so I've been thinking about that a lot. I've been speaking with people um, from different Indigenous organizations here to see if there's a way we can come together to do some education around that or to to find a good way forward. And I don't know what that will look like yet. I'm I'm kind of just waiting. But um, I think that's where where my heart is going next anyways. That was my edited conversation with Michelle Lamb. Next time, in part six, our final podcast in the series, we are in conversation with Jenna Lee Klutz, who argues that in social movements, students have the opportunity to develop new skills and to critique the structures of power that maintain settler dominance over land and resources. She encourages teachers to unsettle themselves and work with their students to act against the continued oppression of Indigenous people. 
Thanks to all our patrons, volunteers, and donors. And thanks to the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Ottawa Public Library, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening.